Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Welcome, everybody, back to Solving Healthcare, Quadcast Nation. We have the one and only Dr. Martha Fulford back. She's an infectious disease specialist, works in Children's Hospital, and our number one downloaded episode, actually, I don't know if you know this, but our episode on childhood vaccines was the, like, our numbers quadrupled. I've never seen anything like that. So we had to bring it back. And I'll tell you why, people. I've never had so many questions. So we were very happy personally in our household that school's back tomorrow, uh, January 17th. But I was actually quite shocked at the number of um, parents that were were anxious. Like, I shouldn't say shocked, but there was a lot of anxiety around bringing kids back to school. And I thought, um, why not bring Martha back to answer some of these questions? And many questions that have come across over the last three or four days since we uh, publicized this episode. And so, yeah, we're just going to try and answer as many as we can uh, that were forwarded along to us. Before starting, I just want to give a quick plug to our Solving Wellness Program, which is continuing to make a, a, a dent in burnout amongst our healthcare professionals, where we offer workouts, yoga sessions, uh, mindful meditation, nutrition tips, cooking classes, um, and it's all to mitigate burnout amongst our healthcare providers. And uh, it's a great community. We're up to 300 members. Um, if you press NL into your chat box, you'll get uh, access to our newsletter and access to this show and also some of this content from Solvent Wellness that we put out on our newsletter. So uh, put in NL into the chat box and you'll be up to date with everything solving healthcare and solving wellness. Okay, so Martha, we'll jump right into it. I get this question all the all the time when I do mainstream media. Are we doing enough to keep schools safe? Are we doing enough to bring the the kids back? In your humble opinion, are schools safe? This is always a challenging question because I don't think they were ever unsafe, and it's a, it's a really um, interesting narrative in Ontario that we start from the presumption that somehow schools were inherently unsafe to start with, because it's really difficult. I mean, you know, how can anybody object to the question: Are schools safe? But if they weren't unsafe in the first place, it becomes really difficult to try to take us back to that position. But clearly, you know, right now, are, are they, you know, do people need to worry about COVID and kids if they go back to school is really the question, right? And I'm, I always sort of think, okay, so was there anything different in Ontario and in our schools than other schools in Canada or internationally? And, and that's really what we're, I think what, what we're asking. So are kids more likely to get COVID if they're in school than if they're not at school? And overall, from what we've seen in Ontario, in Canada, and really around the world, 
is that schools have not been the, the most common site for kids to get COVID. They actually are more likely to get it when they're out and about interacting with family, uh, doing that kind of event. And it's because COVID, for whatever reason, uh, which is a bit different than some viruses, is more likely to be transmitted uh, by an adult to a child. This may change with Omicron, but we certainly haven't seen that yet. Because, of course, children don't go into a black hole and they're not at school. They're still out and about. And if you think about it, in Ontario, kids aren't at school and we're still seeing lots of, of COVID. And so it's that context or that perspective. So for me, I'm not worried about a child going to a school with the perspective of COVID. Um, I, I, this has not been where we've seen it. Uh, mm -hmm. It has been community first and then into the schools. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to also push back a little bit because what does safety mean uh, when we, we talk about safety? Because safety is not just no COVID. Safety is everything else. It's the mental health. It's the physical health. It's the access to, to exercise. It's the eyes of the adults on the children who might be subject to abuse. It's all of those other things that are part of safety for our kids. And so to me, it, it really, you know, if the only thing we're asking is, is COVID, it really, to me, narrows the conversation in a way that, that does not do justice to our children in terms of what they need. So it's a little bit of a broad answer, but more specifically, Ontario's had its schools closed. We have had the longest school closures anywhere in all of North America. This is not a point of pride. We can look at schools in other jurisdictions. We look at schools in British Columbia. We can look at schools in other parts of Canada. But more important, we can look at schools in Europe. We can look at schools in the United States, which have not closed at all or had significantly shorter closures. So, so we can look around and realize, actually, when the schools are open and the kids are going to school, nothing bad happens to the kids in terms of COVID but they don't have all the collateral damage from the social isolation and the online learning and all those interruptions that they've been subjected to here. No, I, I think that's very well put. And then one other area, like pre-Omicron anyway, like we weren't seeing as much no. uh, secondary infections, like secondary spread within schools. Like uh, for whatever reason, I, I got this yeah. question, I got this question um, on a previous interview and she's like, how is this possible that, you know, like every other virus, it seems to spread like wildfire within kids. But this is one of those things as I've heard you say a number of times, Martha, it's like one of the yeah. miraculous things about COVID is that it just doesn't seem to affect kids in the same way it does adults. Yeah. And this has always been to me something I don't understand. We haven't celebrated more. You know, March of 2020, when the, um, you know, we first sort of, kind of acknowledged as a pandemic and, and there was the first closures. It was very rapidly obvious by about May of that year. So May of 2020, looking around the world, it's very clear that the group of people that were not dying or being affected by COVID were young people. And despite the fact that even two years in now, we still have unequivocal evidence that this is a virus that selectively harms, really in terms of the direct impact, people who are older, and people who have a lot of uh, very well-recognized risk factors now, and, and I, uh, we've talked about them before, obesity, poorly controlled diabetes, poorly controlled hypertension, these are metabolic disorders, are the things that we can almost guarantee if, a, if that person gets COVID, they're going to have a, a much more difficult course. And, and we have consistently seen from in Canada, around the world, that the group that does not land in hospital with any frequency at all because of COVID are, are young people. And yet, we're still not, it's almost like we just don't believe that, that there's a good news story with, with COVID. And to me, this has always been one of the most amazing things that our children were spared. Yeah, I, I had that question posed today too, like in terms of, um, you know, like uh, just uh, like celebrating the idea that kids aren't as affected uh, similar to adults, especially when we know the risk factors, like, um, like, like it was uh, like I had to frame it in the interview. I said, literally, I have no anxiety about my kids going to school. I'm happy that our kids are going to school. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have a tough time wrapping their head around that. And I think also, Martha, and I think a lot of it stems from a lot of, from a lot of people thinking that we could still avoid COVID. Like maybe you could comment on on the idea that, uh, 
you know, this COVID zero or the fact that, you know, initially we we're trying to f- avoid COVID at all costs pretty much. Um, but at this yeah. stage, this really isn't possible. No, I actually never thought it was possible. Uh, I was one of the, uh, the people going COVID zero. That's like a fantasy. There, in the history of, of the viruses, of, of human viruses, we've eradicated a grand total of one. And that's smallpox. And there are very unique features of smallpox that allowed that to happen. Um, it had a very distinct physical, like a, a characteristic appearance when people got smallpox with these, these unmistakable skin lesions. People were really only infectious. Uh, once the pox appeared, so you didn't have pre-symptomatic transmission. Uh, we had a vaccine that actually stopped transmission. And because it was very characteristic, you do it, uh, this concept called ring vaccination around wherever, wherever there's an outbreak and stop it from propagating. And, and there was no animal uh, reservoir. So there was no, it wasn't a virus that went from humans to animals back to humans. And COVID and, you know, respiratory uh, infections met none of these criteria. Uh, and so COVID zero always seemed a really um, unusual thing to aim for as in unrealistic. And, and unfortunately, I think it actually did a lot of harm because it, 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 you know, people have the wrong expectation. Then they're going to be disappointed and angry and, and want that. And uh, some of us, myself and, and other people were saying, actually, what our aim should have been is not zero COVID, but as close to zero mortality as possible. And so if, if, if people are happy with the fact that we have reached a state where, where the, the severity of COVID is dramatically reduced, and essentially we're down to what we would expect from any other circulating coronavirus, then we are at a steady state. We, we're, we're, we've transitioned to what would be considered pandemic to endemic. And an endemic state is not a bad state to be. It means that as we lived for millennia with viruses, we'll have seasonal variations, but it won't be this huge mass of infections all at the same time on a a population that has no underlying immunity. So even today, compared to two years ago, we have a significant amount of population immunity. We have very, very high vaccine rates. And though we don't talk about it here very much, certainly if you're in Europe, we would talk about it. People who've had COVID and recovered also have good immunity. So between you know, post-infection immunity and vaccination rates, the, the threat is just not the same. People will get COVID, yes. I believe all of us will get COVID at some point in time. But it, it's, not going, it's not the end of the world. Um, actually, there's a headline I saw the, uh, uh, earlier this month, I think it was the 4th of January from Global News, and the headline literally said, cough, cold, or COVID-19, how can you tell the difference? And I'm thinking, you know what, if you can't tell the difference, you have a cold. Mm. Um, and that's really, you know, the mindset, it's a psychological shift. This is not the same thing we were dealing with two years ago. And how do you, how do we convince people that what we're seeing clinically today is simply not the same. I mean, there are great many people now who have had Omicron just in the last month. I think all of us know people who've been testing positive or who might be at home for a few days. And part of, part of what we should be asking, if, if, if you know somebody who's, got, who's had COVID, is how sick were you? Hmm. And if you weren't very sick and if you're just home for a few days, that's okay. I mean, that that is sort of a state where where we've we've we're winning hugely because most of us will get COVID and we all either not have any idea at all or we'll be home with a, a cold or a, a flu like illness for a few days. I mean, and I mean, it's you know is that acceptable or not acceptable? And I think that's a, a decision we have to make. Some countries have already agreed this is it. We're we're endemic, and other countries are like not quite there yet, like us. Yeah, it, I mean it does. Omicron seemed to enlighten a lot of folks, actually. And yeah. I think this is, might be one of those things where we are forced to change policy. Or I shouldn't say forced to change policy. We will change our approach because those that were not seeing COVID, those that weren't having any exposure to COVID are now seeing yeah. it. And, and now seeing that, you know, it is not as, not as, as it always appears like, on the media, like in, in where, you know, I, I saw a poll where some folks asked, what were your risk of being hospitalized if you contracted COVID and numbers would be like 
upwards to 50%, you know, and I, I really think yeah. that, uh, you yeah. know, the, the, having this perspective now of knowing someone or of having COVID uh, yourself, I think uh, hopefully we'll see some more policies yeah. moving towards an, like an endemic approach. Yeah. Um, there was something else I noticed that actually bothered me a lot. Some people were, um, and you may have seen this also clinically, people were almost apologizing for getting COVID as if it was somehow shameful. And, yes. and it's not, it's, it's a respiratory virus. Nobody should be ashamed because they got a virus. I mean, these things are, you know, they have evolved for a very long time to, you know, cause these mild illnesses and it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing terrible. In fact, the repeated exposure to respiratory viruses are one of the things that actually helps build up our immunity so we don't get very sick from them. Mm -hmm. And so we actually have a degree of underlying immunity all the time. So with, with, with ongoing re-exposures to these viruses, we don't get that sick. Because it's nothing, you know, I still, I, I, I worry when somebody apologizes they've got COVID, I'm thinking it wasn't your fault, it's a respiratory virus. Yeah. There's no shame in getting a cold. Yeah, no, there's a lot of that going on on Twitter right now. I did everything right. I still got COVID. I mean, that's the reality of this thing. It's you shouldn't yeah. be ashamed. Um, getting back a little bit to the, the school related questions. So, you know, there's a, was a movement to make sure that we have enough, for example, HEPA filters in the classroom. Do you have any thoughts on this? What, how, like, I, yes, we've mentioned we, we, there's no clear signs that schools were unsafe in the first place, but I, this question comes up all the time. Like, do we need the HEPA filters? How many do we need? Do we need 17? I'm answering this question or editorializing it a little bit, sorry. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? We have no studies that they're necessary. And I always worry about um, people coming up with, you know, you have to have this, you have to have that. I'm thinking, will HEPA filter do harm? Probably not. Um, now, as you know, from being in hospital, some HEPA filters are extremely noisy. And so if you end up putting a device in a classroom that may or may not make a difference depending on the size and, you know, how many people are in the room and where it's positioned and all these things, and it's very, very noisy and all it ends up doing is causing disruption, you know, and again, it's the pros and cons of something. But I will say that, um, you know, I think one thing that's been highlighted throughout all of this is that a lot of our schools are old. Uh, and, and really um, not great facilities. And so whether or not uh, some of these improvements are necessary because of COVID uh, and the fact that schools in most parts of the world, or not, I shouldn't say most, but a great many countries have kept their schools open, would argue that for COVID in particular, maybe they're not necessary. But that's not to say that it's not a lesson learned that our teachers and children actually maybe do deserve to be in really good facilities. I, one of my patients who was a teacher was telling me that, uh, you know, when the soap ran out in the washrooms halfway through the month, it didn't get replaced to the end of the month. I mean, I think little anecdotes like that are clearly unacceptable. And so working towards the best possible facilities for our children and for, or for the teachers is clearly a desirable thing to do. But do we not let children to school while we work for that? Well, obviously, that's not the right answer either. And so, you know, with the HEPA filters, uh, it in general, should we have good filtration, good air in schools? I think that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. It might help with allergies, with um, you know, sort of the, the sick building syndrome. It may actually help with other respiratory viruses. We don't know. So I'm not sure that we know the answers to whether they're going to help because it's not actually been studied in a school. I haven't seen um, any trials looking at HEPA filters in one class or not another. And so asking for improved environment I don't have a problem asking for that, but I have a problem if it's used as a barrier to yeah. not letting schools reopen. And this is, this is what worries me about some of these conversations is people are asking for improvements, which is not an unreasonable thing to ask for when it comes to the air quality. And we're just, we're just on air quality here. And that's not a bad thing to ask for. It's not a bad thing to say that, you know, our children deserve to, to be taught in school in buildings that are actually comfortable and conducive to learning. And I, I think that's a good thing to aim for, but that doesn't mean our kids can't go back now. And, and this is, a, uh, a, again, one of those balancing acts because we don't know if HEPA filters make one out of difference, but more to the point, we have not seen children harmed anywhere when they do go back to school from the COVID perspective. And, and I, I, I will come back to this over and over again. Please Ontario do. is not 
an isolated island with nobody they can look to information. We can look, for example, to all of Scandinavia. We can look to countries where schools have not been closed at all, where none of these measures have been put in place. Classrooms are normal. There have been no masks in the classrooms. They all have lunch together. They all play together. They all have the same games and sports and extracurriculars, which, which are not cancelled. And those kids are fine. And if they're fine in Scandinavia, and if they're fine in 50% of the U.S., and if they're fine in the United Kingdom, they're going to be fine in Ontario. Yeah, please, please preach this. And I agree with you wholeheartedly, like this shouldn't be prohibitive. And I, I got to say, one of the things that came front of mind when you were mentioning that, like, uh, you know, Ontario is not unique. And when I hear, I get a news, get these letters saying, hey, you know what? Kids are only allowed to speak for 10 minutes when at lunchtime. No, they're not allowed to speak for the first 10 minutes in lunchtime. It's we got silent lunch periods. They're, I've seen these like these messages that kids are too nervous to, to drink their water. So they, you know, they're, you know, having to drink their water quickly and all this stuff, like all this anxiety provoking stuff is insane. I'm sorry. I'm going to editorialize. This is insane. This is our kids. We know the risk. Ontario, we're not unique. Plenty of places in the world have been dealing with this. And why are we, why do we have different standards? Why do we think we're, we need to go above and beyond everywhere else, have longer school closures, higher, like the other thing of these, of, of this is like, there's so many unintended consequences that we just don't appreciate. Like every, all these interventions are not benign. You know, no, like we assume they're benign. And so I, it just drives me nuts when people are basing all these decisions, not on science, not on like data, but on based it's fear. It's fear based, yeah. anxiety based decision making. Yeah. And it's enough. We're January. Yeah, it's it, it's, yeah, two it, years. It's, it's not based right. on any data, unfortunately. I actually think, can you imagine four years ago if we had said small children are not allowed to talk to each other? They're not allowed to play. They're not allowed to have any contact. They're not allowed to talk to their teachers. They have to eat outside. They are not allowed to have any activities. That would be child abuse. That would have been child abuse. If we had said we are going to socially isolate our children, we're not going to let them play. We're not going to let them eat lunch. We're not going to let them see a pace, uh, anybody smile at them. That would have been unthinkable. And we are just accepting this in Ontario where there are, it's, it's actually not the standard of practice in this world to mask young children, for example. We, we're doing it here, but most places that have masking in schools is from 12 and up. We have ne- it's not a standard to do this, and despite the fact that we're doing this here. And so a lot of what we're doing to our children is profoundly harmful to, to, their, to their mental health, to their well-being, to their socialization. I was talking to a friend of mine who was at a parent-teacher meeting for her four-year-old. And apparently one of the criticisms was that he's not maintaining the two-meter distance. He keeps trying to play with his friends. Mm. And that was a criticism of a four-year-old who just wants to play with his friends. The criticism to me is what are we doing to these kids that we're saying they can't play with each other? This is wrong. It is profoundly wrong. That this is the message, you know, telling a child that they that they're not allowed to talk while they eat lunch. This is not based on any evidence. It's 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 I don't even know where it comes from that we're doing this to our children. Adults are allowed to eat together. We we we're, I we mean, do it all it, the time. A, I see you. We, the, we do it all the time, and we're but we, even, we treat COVID patients. I know. Same. Like yeah, this is yeah. what I keep thinking. I'm going the people who are actually treating patients. With COVID, yeah, you, you get a sense—not that you're blasé, but but you get you, you realize that that we can balance our, our our what we're doing, and we we have a, an understanding that it's you know most of us are going to be fine. I, I mean, I work at a children's hospital. We're not swamped with COVID patients. We're swamped with collateral damage. Yeah. Uh, and and it's hard for me to believe that if people are saying we want our kids safe that somehow the word safe has come to mean no talking, no playing, no interaction, social isolation. I mean, I've heard some preposterous things like, oh, well, the kids can all eat outside. They have 15 minutes outside. I'm going, what? 
we would not do that to anybody normally. But our young kids, yeah, yeah, but our young kids, somehow this is what we're saying is okay for something that is not a threat to them. And and this is the mind-boggling part of it. This is a fear of COVID, a fear of something that is simply not a threat to our children. Are there going to be a very small number of cases? Of course. But the risk perception is completely skewed. In -hmm. Canada, I think if you look at all of the deaths in 19 and under in Canada, with or from COVID, so we don't know why they died, but 19 and under since the very beginning of pandemic, there have been 20 deaths of people under the age of of 20 who have had a positive COVID test. The, um, when we look at the analysis of, of deaths, it's usually about 40% are actually because of COVID and the others that it was incidental. So maybe 10. But in 2018, there are 179 children that died in a car accident. Mm. And nobody thinks twice about getting in a car. I mean, those numbers available on stats, you know, anybody can look up fatality rates if you want sort of comparisons of risk. If you look at the risks in the United States for one to four-year-olds, a, a, a one to four-year-old is more likely to die of suffocation than of COVID. And these are the CDC stats. Again, anybody can go online and look up these, these numbers. And so the perception of risk, and it's not to say we ignore COVID. It's not to say that we don't pay close attention to adults. This isn't an either or. It's recognizing this is the group of people who are at risk. This is the group of people that we need to pay attention to we need to focus in on everything we can do to prevent that person landing in hospital, which are, are ad, you know, vulnerable adults. But it's also recognizing and, and being honest about the fact that this is not what's going to happen to our kids, but, but, but making a four or five-year-old eat isolated, not being allowed to talk, being constantly told he or she can't show her face to anybody that are not, this is wrong. This, this, before COVID, this would have been frank child abuse, and I don't think anybody would argue that point. And, you know, I, thank you, Martha. Like, it's just a lot of us, and I know, Martha, you've gotten heat for what we say oh, yeah. and the, the hate letters. And um, and what's insane is 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 just that when you look at the risk, like, I want everyone to understand this wholeheartedly. You driving your kid to their basketball practice or to whatever activity they're go- you're doing is a higher risk activity than if they, the the chances of them dying from COVID legit. Yeah. And you get into that car, you don't even think about it. So you can't sit here telling me can, uh, our schools aren't safe enough. Schools ain't safe enough. I'm like, show me the data. What's the, what's the rationale at this point? It's not just COVID we got to deal with. We got to deal with the sequelae. You know what I'm saying? By our policies and how it's going to affect them, not just now, but also long term. And we're ignoring this. And I told I've been saying this for a while. Like, this is the the the, the line in the sand for me is the kids. Yeah. I don't like this is the the line in the in the, in the sand. Okay, like we, who if we can't stick up for these guys, who can we stick up for? Because they have just been onslaughted over the last two years. You thought we had you know we've heard Adrian Matheson, the child psychologist, talking about how their cases have gone like the the anxiety, depression, uh, eating disorders, all man impacted obesity, type two diabetes in our kids going up child abuse. And we're sitting there saying it's okay. No, enough is enough. I'm sorry. And I, one other thing I got to get on my chest while I'm rolling, I get, I get these letters also by, and uh, listen, I love teachers. I love you all. Listen, but when I get these letters saying, Oh, will you come and teach, come in and help us out during uh lunchtime or help us out during uh uh yeah during their break and see how you feel or how you feel feel about the threat of covid i'm like i work in an icu i will gladly step into that to that lunchroom i will gladly step in and help those kids whatever you want you know what i'm saying because i know my risk you know i i protected myself i'm vaccinated that's the way this works step up it's a time of dignity or duty right now sorry i'm getting all jazzed up here it, it, sometimes i i think am i the only person left that actually thinks the vaccines work uh, wow. because the the main role of a vaccine and, and i i have been vaccinating in clinics over and above my regular work since february um and is 
by making that decision to be vaccinated, I know that when I get COVID, and I'm saying when, my chances of getting severe, of having a severe outcome are dramatically reduced. I also believe that I exercise, I try to keep my weight normal, I try to make sure I'm healthy, I do all those preventive things that are also good, not just prevention of COVID, but all those general, that's my plug for general health, right? Yes. But, but I, I don't mind who's around me. I, I, I can be exposed to COVID by somebody who's, who's been vaccinated and, and uh, shedding virus. I can ha- be surrounded by people who are unvaccinated and shedding virus. The protection I get is the same. So am I worried? No, I, I actually believe, I fundamentally believe that, that that they work. I don't have to have every single person around me vaccinated or not vaccinated because that's how it works. I mean, once you're protected, you're protected. Uh, and um, that's a very good point yeah, that I what, don't think is uh, registered for people. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people seem to think that, oh, everybody around you has to be vaccinated. Well, that's not how it works. You know, there, there's a personal, the personal benefit of, of being vaccinated stays no matter what. The more people we have that are vaccinated, particularly in the vulnerable adults, there's a public health benefit to that because that reduces the risk of a burden to our hospitals. That, of course, is most important with people who are going to land in hospital in the first place. It's way less important with younger people where that's not our hospital burden. So so it's less of a concern, obviously, for the people who are at risk in the first place. But our focus on vaccinating vulnerable adults was and remains important. Um, but that, you know, if, if, you know, it's okay. I mean, I, I, people want that one, would I go into a, a lunchroom or a classroom with, with 30 kids? You do. I mean, I work at a children's hospital, I'm surrounded by kids all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no con, no concerns at all. Yeah. You I know? mean, I feel the same way. Like I know I got my protection, especially when we, as you mentioned, like the transmission data, yeah. we were hoping it would be less, it would be more, uh, um, yeah potent that in terms of reducing transmission but uh, i think especially i mean with delta further down the road from vaccination but certainly with omicron that seems to be uh less of an issue yeah it's i think it was dis- it's disappointing we did see some reduced um, reduction in transmission with uh with the delta for the fr- you know for the first Zero. maybe four or five months mm-hmm. after vaccination and we did start to see a lot more breakthrough with omicron mm-hmm. it, it really has changed the conversation we're um, we're not seeing uh, anywhere near the same uh, prevention of transmission, but we are still seeing uh, protection against severe disease. And, and uh, to me, that's always been the single most important uh, component of all of this. hundred percent, hundred percent. So just a couple of questions that I know that uh, a lot of parents are asking about this, like if they hearing this and they're still like, you know what, I don't care. I want to try and aim uh, I want to protect everything as much as we can. There's a lot of question about, uh, you know, d- does my kid need to have an N95 mask? Uh, what are your thoughts on that going to school? N95 masks are, um, you know, considered medical devices in a lot of ways. Uh, and so when we use one in a hospital, it is properly fit tested to our faces, which means that we try different masks to make sure that we can maintain that entire seal the whole time. Uh, we wear them uh, usually for very limited controlled encounters. So if I'm going into a room, say, with somebody with active pulmonary tuberculosis, uh, and I know that that's a, a, you know, an infection spread, um, it's an airborne transmission, I will make sure that I find the right mask that I have been properly fit tested to. I put it on before I go into the room. I make sure I've got my seal maintained, and then I keep that seal on in the room. If we're talking about wearing this kind of a mask out and about, I, again, I, I am highly skeptical, to be perfectly honest. Uh, there has been no, uh, as far as I'm aware, and I, I, you know, somebody can try to show me, there has been no study anywhere ever uh, that has looked at uh, N95s on children. Uh, there are no formal approvals for N95s in children. That's not a standard we would use. But more to the point, there's no conceivable way that anybody or a child in particular is going to be wearing one and having a seal and not touching it and moving it around and playing with it. And also, as soon as they leave the school and it's off, they're going to get exposed to Omicron anyway. Um, not to be harsh, but that's the reality we're facing. Uh, and so we're having this conversation in Ontario. And I'm going to come back to the fact that if you're in Europe, no child under the age of 12 needs to wear a mask. 
Mm. Uh, and so yeah, I still find myself, you know, really quite flabbergasted that we, anybody would even contemplate that a small child needs an N95 to protect that child against a virus that really isn't a threat to that child. And yet they're actually not recommended for children under the age of 12 if you go to Europe. So again, I think we have to reconcile this in our head. Like, why are we recommending this here? A, a somewhat punitive measure, actually. It's inhibiting, it's uncomfortable, it's unnecessary. Uh, we don't actually know if it'll work, but you know, I guess you know, if somebody wants to run a trial, they could. But I actually think if we're going to be you know, two years into this, if we're going to be recommending something like that, we should actually have evidence that works, that makes a difference, and that it's necessary. Mm-hmm. And I find myself, again, struggling. I actually, yesterday, because I'm working on this presentation, I just idly, I went online and started to search for images of, of children in school right now, like 2021, 2022. I was just going sports, lunch, dance, music. And it's amazing if you do that, you'll find all of these images of all of these schools where the kids are just back to normal. They're not, they're not being inhibited like this. They're, you'll, you'll get you know, pictures or, or short videos of kids like in North Dakota with a huge band practice all indoors, all the kids playing their music and all the parents clapping, nobody with a mask on because they've decided that it's not necessary anymore because they're comfortable that it's, it's reached an endemic state. You can get, you know, pictures of kids in Ireland or Scotland or the UK playing games. You can get, you know, the 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 kids all running running in in classrooms and kids on the floor playing games you can get kids in costumes you know there's one from the UK with young kids with red nose day and they were all wearing little red noses so if kids in the rest of of Europe and in great parts of North America can do that and this is right now while omicron is surging why are we asking our kids to wear an N95 I mean, this, there should be cognitive dissonance. People should be thinking, hold on a minute. Like, why, why has Sweden never had a child wear a mask and their kids are okay? And why are we doing this to our kids here? If you look up, the, I think there's seven countries that are recommending masking in young kids and, and no other country is. Keep asking these good questions. Uh, you know, like this is, this is exactly it. This is... Part of yeah. the, um, this is what makes this so challenging when you see what's happening yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's hard because, you know, what? if I say stuff like that, I will get um, messages saying I'm trying to harm children, that oh, I must totally. hate kids. And I'm going, totally. no, I don't. I, I'm actually passionate, passionate about the health and well-being of our children. I feel very strongly about what we need to do to keep them healthy. And I'm saying, that if we care about our kids, if we really care about our kids and we really care about their safety, then we are going to look after their physical, their mental, their social well-being. We're going to think about their futures. We're going to stop doing things that are deliberately cruel. Like the casual cruelty of saying to a child that they can't talk to their friends during lunchtime, that that, that is not based on any medical evidence. Yeah. It's, I, I it's, just, it's I, I, I can't defend it. I would say. I would say it's, it's, well, anti- it's actually anti-evidence. Yeah, I yeah. have to agree with you. Um, oh, man. It's, it's just, the more, I, the more I think about this, the more insane I think how we've approached this in so many ways. So a lot of, a lot of questions come up, like a lot of stuff in the press about uh, higher hospitalization rates in our kids these days. Any thoughts on that? So or or you, even like what you're seeing as at your hospital. Oh, no, we, uh, we, we, we see a lot of incidentals. Uh, and the thing is, you have to remember that every person who is admitted to hospital right now gets tested for COVID. We're screening everybody, which is another question is, I think at some point we need to stop doing that. So if people have no symptoms, we really, sh- you know, if a person's healthy, they're healthy. We need to stop testing healthy people. That's a whole different topic. Um, but. So every child that gets admitted to hospital is screened. And so when you have a lot of cases in the community, you know, it's not surprising that a proportion of the people coming into hospital can, are, are, will have a positive test. The, uh, actually, there's a public health agency of Canada. There's a group called um, 
CNIST. It's the uh, Canadian Nosocomial Infection Surveillance Program. Nosocomial means they're hospital acquired. But we look at infections in hospital. And this uh, report is as of December 13th. And um, certainly from what I saw on the ground, it's no different. But the majority of patients hospitalized are not actually because of COVID. So uh, in this particular uh, review, uh, 60%, uh, actually was 56% were incidental. Um, interestingly, 20% of the kids that tested positive for COVID had zero symptoms. Mm-hmm. So, so one, in, one in five of our positives didn't even have any symptoms of COVID. Uh, and the vast majority who don't do well uh, with COVID or who do end up in an intensive care unit are very vulnerable children to start with. They, they have significant neurological disorders. Um, they're, they're already dependent for a lot of their care. Uh, we have children who are in home breathing machines, home ventilators, home oxygen. And these kids are always very vulnerable to any virus mm-hmm. and not surprisingly COVID. But otherwise, COVID right now, particularly the Omicron, is really it's no different than any virus. Uh, when I, I was on service all of November, uh, we saw way more RSV than we saw COVID. So, like, is it fair to say, like, the say if you were to compare admissions overall, just overall admissions from this time of year compared to say two years ago, uh, three years ago, would you think there's much of a of a difference? Just curious. We, we may be seeing fewer respiratory tract infections. November felt kind of normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all the RSV. Uh, so we had a lot of RSV, a lot of enterovirus. We were seeing parainfluenza 3. We had a couple of cases of influenza and then and a couple of cases of COVID that were, where the, the, the kids um, had sort of you know, exacerbating a bit of asthma. Or, but mostly the kids with the COVID had the significant um, co- uh, associated risk factors. So November felt more normal, but mostly because I think the RSV. January, it... We haven't seen a lot, actually. I mean, some places are reporting more, but it, it, I think if, in general, if you ask around and if you look to sort of across the board, the general consensus from all the pediatric hospitals is that, yes, there are more kids testing positive, but they're not sicker, a lot incidental. One report I read from San Francisco said that 70% of the kids were actually incidental, where, where that's not why they were in hospital. Mm. And again, how do you balance this? Because you never want to minimize the fact that some children a very small number will get very sick, but no more so with COVID than we see with other respiratory viruses that we, we see every single year. And, and again, it's all about expectations. And I'm always surprised. I've, I've had people who, who are symptomatic or their kid has a cold and we say, oh no, it's RSV, not COVID. And they're relieved. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, it's actually RSV is worse than COVID, but somehow, um, they're relieved that it's not COVID. Yeah. Uh, it's just very bizarre, uh, yeah. the fear of COVID. It, and I think some of the stigma that still some people still feel about it. Uh, and, and I keep saying it's just a virus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and, and as in nobody should ever be ashamed because they got a viral infection. That, that's just, no, don't, don't. Uh, this is not anything to do with, with behavior. This is the virus being the virus. No, thank you for that, Martha. The other common question we're getting is, and I, I, I get this one daily, is should we be advancing the interval for our 5 to 11-year-olds? Um, you know, as you know, Nasty's recommendation of eight weeks has been uh, the focus. And then with uh, the schools coming back, there's been a push to, to, to get them done earlier. Any thoughts on that? So the, what we do know is that the first dose of the vaccine um, already gives excellent protection, like well over 90%. And this was actually from the Pfizer study, uh, the original study on, on children, uh, both younger and, and the teens. And we've certainly seen that sustained in, in clinical practice. So when we think of the interval uh, between boosters, the, there's a period where you have to allow the immune system, there's a certain degree of maturation in terms of, of the, the body producing the original antibodies, developing some cell-mated immunity, so when you give the booster, you get the, be- the best response. And there is uh, pretty clear evidence uh, worldwide, certainly in, in adults and in older um, individuals, that the eight-week interval provided a much more sustained response. And so w- when the people who are more likely to have the breakthrough infections or, or to see the waning antibodies were the shorter interval. 
So I personally, uh, I thought I think NACI got it right. NACI, for those who don't know, is the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations. These are you know national experts. They review the data. They have a very clear, in-depth understanding of how vaccines work and how to recommend them. And so, you know, knowing that that uh, the main reason for vaccinating is to protect the person being vaccinated. Children, to start with, are very low risk. So, so we're you know, we're all, we're going from a very low risk to to a very low risk with the vaccines uh, to an even lower risk. The first dose already gives that. I guess for me, if you want the biggest bang for your buck, it's actually doing the eight weeks uh, because that seems to to really set the immune system the best. The other thing that we did that has been seen is that with the longer interval. There were few. Uh, it was less likely to see some of the adverse events that were being described, uh, and certainly in teenagers and, and uh, young people in their twenties, particularly men. Uh, we have seen increased cases of myocarditis post-vaccine. The the reports of this happening in the younger kids um, there haven't been as many, which is I think what people were expecting, simply because of what we see with myocarditis um, in other situations. Uh, not that there have been none, but it's been a, the safety signals are very reassuring. Nevertheless, having said that, I, I, I find myself thinking, I don't want to cr- invent stuff. I, I think we should actually follow what our National Advisory Committee immunizations recommended. There are you know, everything about the vaccines that we've seen is that that the children are tolerating them really well. We're not seeing a lot of long term. We're not seeing a lot of adverse effects. On the other hand. We're still learning how long they'll be effective in the kids. Uh, we haven't been vaccinating kids long enough to answer that definitively. We certainly saw that waning of immunity um, in older people, which is uh, why the whole conversation of boosters. And so my, my comfort level with, with vaccines is to uh, have that risk-benefit conversation. But I actually have a lot of respect for NASI and for the work they do. And I didn't feel like second guessing them. I didn't think it was necessary. I don't think it was necessary. I think the recommendations were spot on that the risk of COVID is low, very low. There are some kids who definitely should be vaccinated. Uh, Any other child where they wish to be vaccinated should be vaccinated. Uh, But at that level, we respect the family's choices. Uh, I I do not believe, for example, it should be mandated for young children, again, because of the risk benefit. conversation about it in this age group and also because everything is pointing to to them being safe but we are still collecting that data i would also remind parents that we are vaccinating uh we have we are vaccinating children in in canada and so far so good as i say it's everything is pointing to a really good safety profile but this is not universal uh, the recommendations are different in other countries and in most of Europe. It's approved for 5 to 11, recommended for high-risk kids, recommended for kids where there's a high-risk adult, and optional for everybody else, and so and with the eight-week interval. And so again, I don't think Ontario needs to create its own unique rules where we have strong recommendations from NASI and we've got excellent recommendations from, from the European CDC. We can learn all these things and, and you know what, just do it properly. Amen. Yeah. Follow what the experts are saying. I, yeah. uh, I think it's, um, that's an important thing to, to mention. Um, what about uh, long COVID? This is another one that I get long COVID or also might as well uh, talk about MISC as well. Yeah. Are you concerned that it's was like, you know, that's one of the arguments people will mention is like, yeah, maybe kids do well, fine, but I don't want my kid getting long COVID. I don't want my kid getting MIS. Uh, see, yeah. what are your thoughts on this? So the um, talk about uh, miss the MISC. So MISC is multi-inflammatory syndrome of children. It's a post-infectious phenomenon that we um, have seen after COVID. It usually happens you know, within four weeks. Um, it's actually quite interesting because anecdotally um, in, in here, as well as uh, Europe and the U.S., we're seeing way less post-Delta and post-Omicron. And I, I don't think we know why yet, but that, that sort of, you know, we're learning about that. But it was like, wait, 
we're still seeing a few cases, but it just, it was almost like it went away uh, for a while. It's quite rare. Uh, and um, it's one of these post-infectious phenomena that sometimes are seen. And, and we know that uh, infections, that is not uncommon to get post-infectious phenomena. And uh, I guess you, know, you get a huge wave of anything going through a population, you're going to see a wave of post-infectious syndromes. So the vaccines do reduce the risk of this, uh, whether it makes it go to zero, um, we're not sure, but it certainly uh, does reduce the risk of, of the post-infectious um, MIS-C. Long COVID is, again, I'm going to call it post-infectious syndrome. There are some post-infectious syndromes that are really well-recognized. We all know that any virus, any infection um, can potentially trigger one of these things. Guillain-Barre syndrome is one that we know can be triggered by infections. There's a condition called ADAM. There's uh, for post-bacterial, post-streptococcal conditions. So, I mean, post, post-infectious syndromes are not unknown. We see them after influenza. We see them after enterovirus. We see them after mycoplasma. So this is a well-described thing that can happen, and it's not unique to covid question is, is it more common with COVID? And the answer is no. Um, there's a lot of fear. There's a, a lot of what I'm going to call frank misinformation out there. I mean, I heard somebody saying that 35% of kids are going to get long COVID. I mean, that, I'm sorry, but that's nonsense. And it's misinformation. There are now three really good studies that have been done. Uh, and one uh, and um, a systematic review in, in the Pediatric Infectious Disease Journal where they've actually looked at that. You need to have a case definition and you need to look at kids who've had confirmed COVID and kids who have not had COVID. Because self-reported, a lot of kids feel lousy right now. We've done that to them uh, with all of the, the restrictions that have been put on them throughout the pandemic. But what we saw and, and what we've seen is when you actually do a systematic study and you have proper confirmed case con- uh, uh, COVID and proper case controls with no COVID, what you don't see is much difference at all in post-infectious syndromes with the vast majority um, of symptoms gone by the 12-week mark. Are there some post-infectious syndromes? Yes. Is this a reason to be scared to have your child go to school? No, it is not. Um, I, it's, uh, you didn't ask me about this, but I'm going to just touch on this quickly. Misinformation. There's a lot of misinformation minimizing stuff, saying the vaccines don't work. There's misinformation about, you know, for a while, like 5G transmitters and who knows what. But there's also misinformation on the other side. I'm going to call it the, 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 I don't know what the term is, COVID maximizers. But but honestly, the misinformation about the risks and the threats and and how dire it all is and that the only way you're going to survive this is if you do all this nonsense, that's also misinformation. And we actually should be calling that out. When people are, are saying threatening, somewhat hysterical things, that bear no relation to clinical experience is not based on what any of the pediatricians are saying. And, and you know, we're also scratching our heads thinking, where did that come from? That's also misinformation. And I actually think it's time that we start calling people out. If you're going to start claiming that this many people are going to have a problem, well, I'm sorry, show me the study. Show me where that data comes from. If you're going to claim that people have to do all this stuff to keep themselves safe, like really? You're telling me that you've had three doses of a vaccine that you yourself have elected to wear an N95, but you still won't let anybody else around you? Like what, like they, at some point we have to take a step back and say, is this actually make sense? Or, are, or do we have people at the other extreme, the two extremes of misinformation? Can we actually sort of meet in the middle and acknowledge that there is a middle ground, there is a balance that we could reach? We can totally acknowledge COVID. We can totally acknowledge who's at risk and the role of the vaccines. And we can also acknowledge as collateral damage. And these are not mutually exclusive positions. Oh, man. I, I'm so glad you brought that Sorry, up. Sorry, I, I got I, on a rant there. No, it's, it's, it's so good, though, because part of this is like the, the dialogue is not safe. I, so I had a, uh, someone comment to me on Twitter, uh, Vinay Prasad, just recently put out a Twitter post talking about how we, we really should have done a better job evaluating some of our interventions, like you know, whether it's lockdown, yeah. masking, all this stuff. Yeah. And uh, I retweeted it. And some, some people were like, how can you how can you promote this guy's activity or like this guy or whatever? And I'm like, what? first of all, I love Vinay. OK, so I'll, I'll go to bat for Vinay. Second, it's not about the person. It's the content. Let's stop getting trying to be all tribal. Let's stop like focus. 
like the value, it sh- the argument should be in the value. What are you trying to achieve? You know, as opposed to like who, who said it, what do they represent? Like we are, this is why we're where we are because we're being so tribalistic because we're so black and white in our thinking. Okay. Like we need, to, yeah. we need to move, like, have, we need to be better. I said something about Florida. I said, you know, Florida did something really well. And before I could even say that, I was lambasted because I was talking about Florida because they're Republican. I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not talking about politics. I'm saying they focused in on early treatment quickly. They mm-hmm. set up a lot of monoclonal antibody clinics very quickly. This was well done. It has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with whether you, you know, what, what you believe in or not believe in. It's just a fact. They did this really well. And by, by, by focusing in so, so much on early treatment for people who got COVID, they prevented a lot of hospitalizations. Mm. I'm not going to talk about politics. I'm just saying it's like a good thing. And we were kind of behind the eight ball doing that. And so when I compliment Florida on something, I, I'm thinking this isn't a political stance. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm just making an observation that early treatment is a good thing. Yeah, 100%. And I, uh, but and I hate to say it. They weren't willing but- to take it because it was Florida. Oh, man. And I, I hate to say it, but our physician yeah. colleagues are, have been the worst when it comes to this. Oh, you, you mentioned you even mentioned. Yeah, you mentioned Florida. You mentioned Texas. You mentioned Sweden yeah, in I a sentence. Just... Holy cow. You're anti-vax. Like, come on. Yeah, I'm um, I got yeah. one more main question for you. Boosters amongst our 12 and 17 year olds. I, how do you feel about that? Because there's a push for it in, in some places. At this stage, of the I, I don't think we have any evidence whatsoever. It's necessary. I think you know when we when we think of um, giving boosters, that the the recommendation should be based on the clinical rationale, and the um, what we have seen in the studies that look at boosters uh, is that uh, where we see a, a good clinical impact is actually in the over seventy, over sixty, but definitely over seventy age group. So I really think if you're going to say, what, what, what's, the, what's the point, what's the clinical, what's the medical indication for doing this and, and the timing of it? These are really important questions. And for me, again, I'm just going to say it's nothing to do with politics, but I'm saying if our objective, which I think is what the objective should be, is to minimize the number of people that are severely sick, then we zero in on the group that most benefit from that because our teenagers uh, with the two doses, have shown every evidence of having excellent protection. Um, they're, they're, you know, we don't see a waning immunity. We don't see an increase in hospitalizations uh, after two doses. Um, they're, they're fine. Whereas with seniors, we were starting to see a waning immunity and an increased risk of being hospitalized. And, and, and giving that group a booster has helped. And, and sort of done what it's supposed to do, boost their immune system. And so if we're going to recommend a booster, then it really, um, I think, should be based on a, a determined clinical outcome and a rationale. The other thing about a booster, and again, this is a personal opinion, is that I think the timing is very important. So you want to do it when you've got that proper sort of maturation of the immune system so that when you give it, it actually has a good impact in terms of, of consolidating or boosting that immunity. But the other thing I'm going to ask, and this is a bit provocative, is if we're starting to see a seasonality to, um, to COVID, which is what we see with all of the coronaviruses, and we're going to start to see variations, seasonal variations, then do we boost now as the wave is on its way down, and we probably won't see any cases in the summer because that's what we've seen in the last two years. And so the, the, the chances are, are pretty good that we're going to drop and, and have a hiatus. And do we then wait and time a booster for the next wave, as we do say with influenza vaccines, where we tend to give them in October, when we know that we're going to be hit you know, sometime in November to January? And so I think that these are reasonable questions. It's not, I am very, obviously, very much in favor of vaccines. I mean, I'm an infectious disease doctor, but that doesn't mean I'm in favor of just willy-nilly doing this without any evidence or, or thoughtful discussion about if we're going to do it, what's the best time, what are we aiming to achieve, what's the clinical outcome, and what's the best timing for it? And I, it may well be that we end up with a vaccine similar to influenza where it's tweaked every year for whatever the circulating strain is. 
and, and it's given just before we, we get away. I don't know. I can't predict the future. But asking these questions is, is not unreasonable. Asking these questions is saying, look, we've got a great tool. The, the, this tool of vaccinating people, particularly our vulnerable adults, has done a phenomenal job keeping people out of hospital. But can we fine tune it now? They, they, we don't have to maybe necessarily boost everybody all at once in a panic because we've got an Omicron wave. Maybe the best thing would be zero in on the people who are landing in hospital uh, because that's where we want our intervention to be. We want to minimize the risk of, of people landing in hospital. And, and really, I mean, that, that should be our aim. And if that's our aim, then the, the biggest impact is vaccinating 70 plus and then any adult who's at high risk landing in hospital and then people with, with high risk conditions. Because if you've got a healthy 17-year-old who would never have landed in hospital in the first place, the booster may or may not make any difference. Uh, well, it won't make any difference because they weren't going to land in hospital in the first place. And we have to be very cognizant when we talk about this as well. That's the primary benefit. It's disappointing, but we're not seeing great prevention of transmission. Uh, there may be some reduction after the booster, but again, is that enough to warrant doing it to everybody? Or is it better? To, to focus all of our attentions and energies on the group that most benefits? These are questions, but I, you know, when people ask these questions, I don't think they should be shot down or be given labels. I think it's, you know, yes, we think the vaccines are great and let's fine-tune how we're using them now. Absolutely. I mean, the great points. If you're going to be boostering kids, are you reducing their risk of being hospitalized? Are you reducing their risk of transmission? Are and is it safe? Like, I just want it to be yeah. data driven decisions. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like, it's, not it's just willy nilly. Yeah. Yeah. It's early. And, and, and it is not, again, mutually exclusive. You, a person can be absolutely in favor of the vaccines, but, but also pragmatically saying, you know what? We've only been vaccinated kids since October, November, teenagers since the summer. Uh, everything we say so far is very reassuring. But yes, we have seen some adverse events in some cases. Yes, we're learning about the frequency of it. Yes, we're learning about how long-lasting this is. And kids have very robust immune systems, a lot you know, stronger, is more reactive in a lot of ways. And, and you know, we may discover that they don't need to be boosted anywhere to the same extent as a 70-year-old. And that's also okay. It's not an, a, a, in any way putting down the vaccines. It's saying, we've done an amazing job rolling it out. We fundamentally changed the, the face of what we're dealing with. And now... We have the luxury and the opportunity to fine tune how we're, how we're going to use this and make sure that we um, vaccinate each age as they need, acknowledging their risk and acknowledging how their immune system works. Absolutely. And um, the fact that everyone, a lot of us are going to be exposed to Omicron and have a hybrid infection will also play into what the future looks like. It's going to be a very interesting 2022, yeah. I think. And that, that's another question we, uh, you know, we're still not talking about in, in here is what do we do with people who've had COVID and recovered? Yeah. Uh, because in, in, as I say, in Germany, for example, their very strict vaccine passport is you're vaccinated or you've recovered and they, and they count them as equivalent. And I actually think we should be studying this. We should be looking at how long does the immunity post-infection last? How good is it? If we're going to vaccinate post-infection, um, again, you should be treating it as a booster and figuring out when is, when is the best time to do that uh, and, and, or, and even asking, do they need it? How many people have recovered have, have actually had breakthrough infections compared to people who are vaccinated? These are not anti-vaccine messages. These are pragmatic academic questions to ask because we are learning a lot and we've seen a lot of studies coming out that show that you know, people who have recovered from COVID have a very good immune response and, and we shouldn't pretend that's not happening. We should recognize it, learn from it and figure out how to work with that. 100%. This is one of the many questions I've had regarding COVID is not acknowledging, not, not acknowledging it while other parts of the world have, have done so, not doing seroprevalent studies in our, in our own country, like how many people have already had COVID and maybe not known it or maybe not get tested just yeah. to see how, how we're doing from a broader perspective. But so many questions. I'm just going to answer one quick question about uh, when you talked about Florida and, and was talking about early treatments, early treatments are such like monoclonal antibodies. So 
Basically, it's when you are diagnosed with COVID and then offered a treatment to reduce your risk of being hospitalized or dying. So monoclonal antibodies you could get here on here, here in Ontario, um, very specific criteria based on availability. Um, so um, that's one. The oral Pfizer um, antiviral is not available yet in Canada, but I'm sure we're just anytime now yeah, we'll hear from Health Canada. There's fluvoxamine, an antidepressant that has had a positive study in reducing uh, yeah, hospitalization. Yeah, repurposed drug. drug. Yeah, five-day treatment, I believe. Um, so th- there's stuff out there. Inhaled budesonide. Yeah, that uh, I don't think it's been RCT'd or. No, but, but it, it seems it, to be showing pretty good. Yeah, yeah. and it, you know, and it's very safe, well used. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, it's um, and so th- this is also also part of the future moving forward. Yeah. I think. So listen, Martha, I just want to give a mad props, a super thank you, because I, I, I don't I get emotional to think about this, but I don't know if people fully understand how much of a hero uh, Martha is in terms of advocating for our kids, because I felt it for firsthand. Number one, thank you for all the love. I, I, I think you've gotten that too, Martha, throughout this country, people reaching out saying thank you for the advocacy. But it's not easy, people. Like I know, I can, I, I know it firsthand what Martha's going through about the professional threats, the the emails, the social media threats. It's it's hard. It's hard on just as a human being to be, you know, put under that kind of scrutiny. Yeah, and I never expected advocating for kids would ever be thought of as controversial. I know, yeah. I know, but it. it and I'm saying there's very few of us doing this. And this is why I, th- I want to thank you because it gives me, so I, I'm getting proclaimed. So I didn't think I would. Uh, it, sorry. Yeah. It gives me strength seeing, seeing you do what you do. And, um, and I'm going to continue to do it based on, yeah. you know, and I, we'll, you know we'll what, honestly, together. the more voices that speak out, the, the better off for our kids. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. The other thing I, I will say is for the teachers out there, this was, this was all about the teachers and the kids. And uh, this is one thing I heard on a previous podcast, which I think was brilliant. If we're going to create some of this change, I'm always going to make myself available. You have a group of teachers, you have a group of parents that want to, to ask all the COVID questions you want. I'll be as honest as possible. If I don't know, I'll, I'll divert it to someone that does know, but so from someone that has seen COVID himself, that is also recognize the risk the reason why I'm not have no worries about my kids going to school. But if you want that to that availability, I will create time so that we could appease this. Cause this is how I think we'll create some more change. I've actually offered that before. And I, and I'll reiterate that, that as well. Any group that's ever asked me to speak, um, if, if I'm at all able to, I will whether it be Zoom, I actually am happy to meet people in person because, as I say, I think the vaccines work. And, um, but I've always also said that anybody at all who, who wants uh, to have questions answered or run scenarios, I've always also said I'd be more than happy to do it. Absolutely. Once again, yeah. Martha, super informative. I think this might this might surpass our other episode. You might be num- number one and number two. Who knows? I, either way, it's, gonna, it's glorious. Thank you so anyway. much. And look, happy school for everybody. Happy school.